And good morning once again. Good to see everyone here this morning. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 10? If you're new with us, we want to welcome you. It's good to see you this morning. Just to let you know, we are currently studying the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning, looking at it verse by verse as we always do. We are currently in chapter 10, but stopped for a few weeks to camp on verse 9, where we did a series we entitled The Gospel, The Key to Salvation. And uh, so in case you forgot, because we have a way of doing that, get sidetracked in a nice little series, and uh, let me just refresh your memory briefly. Remember that John 10 is a continuation of chapter 9. Now in chapter 9, Jesus Christ healed a man who was born blind. He was blind from birth. Only blind men in the Bible, actually, New Testament, where uh, someone was healed from birth. There's a lot of symbolism in that. We talked about that. We studied John chapter 9, verse 1, I think. But Jesus healed this blind man. Of course, it created quite a story. He was born blind. I mean, he, all his friends, his neighbors, family, they were all like going berserk. This genuine miracle had happened. Got the attention of the Pharisees, called the guy in. What's going on? How, uh, uh, who was it that opened your eyes? What did he look like? I think one of the translations, what did he look like? The guy was blind. I mean, how stupid is that? What did he look like? I don't know what he looked like. I just know it was a man called Jesus. What did he do? Well, he spit in the ground and made some mud and wiped it in my eyes. Nobody go wash in the, I think, pool of Siloam. And I didn't. I was, my eyes were healed. I received my sight. Uh, no, it can't be Jesus because of Nazareth. He's, uh, he's evil. He's, they, they kept ripping Jesus apart. They hated Jesus, the Pharisees did. They didn't want to accept what this blind man had to say. The guy kept answering. He kept asking the same question. He kept answering the same question. You know, he's getting frustrated. Uh, and, 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 you know, turned their own theology on them because this guy is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath, honor Moses. Well, it's a marvelous thing. We know that God doesn't hear the prayer of sinners, he said. Yeah, here's a guy, a man who opened my eyes, an obvious miracle, you know, and you say he's not from God. They went berserk in verse 34. They answered him and said, you were completely born in sins and you are teaching us, John 9, 34. And they cast him out, excommunicated him from the synagogue. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This then becomes the segue into chapter 9, where Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd, as opposed to the religious, religious excuse me, I'll try it again, as opposed to the religious leaders uh, of Israel who were evil, bad shepherds, okay? We read in John 10, because this is where we pick it up this week. In John 10, verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So here Jesus is contrasting himself as the good shepherd with the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and listen, any other religious leader and teacher uh, of any cult or religious system in the world, 
If they don't speak according to God's word, God said that very clearly through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 8, verse 20. If they do not speak according to this word, my word, if they don't speak according to my truth, it is because there is no light in them. Look, any so-called shepherd, religious teacher, leader, who teaches contrary to the word of God is evil and dangerous as a shepherd or leader. And that I didn't say that directly. Jesus said it. Jesus said it. The Lord likened himself, excuse me, the Lord likened them, in this context, the Jewish leadership of Israel, to thieves and robbers who he said come to steal, kill, and destroy. Now we could interpret that. One of the ways we could interpret that is that these false shepherds come to steal your money, kill your faith, and destroy your soul in hell forever. In contrast to these wicked shepherds, Jesus said that he came, that those who follow him as their shepherd would have life and that more abundantly. Now, this is a reoccurring theme in John's gospel. We have talked about this. Life, that's a reoccurring theme in John's gospel. In fact, John tells us that that was the very reason why he wrote his gospel. John 20, verses 30 and 31 John says, truly, Jesus did many other miracles in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. I couldn't fit them all in. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There it is. All the way through John's gospel, he talks about life. In chapter 6, verse 35, he quoted Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. Here in John 10, Jesus said that he and he alone is the source of abundant life. In chapter 14, he made his famous declaration, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John opened his gospel with a statement that would set the uh, tone for the rest of his gospel. In chapter 1, verse 4, he simply said of Jesus that in him was life. In saying this, John was not talking about physical life because he uses the Greek word zoe, which refers to spiritual life. The Greek word bios, from which we got our English word biology, is the word for physical life. Zoe life, also translated or actually translated eternal life, excuse me, is found only in Jesus, who is the source of this life. But you're thinking, well, okay, but just what is this Zoe life that is only found in Jesus? Well, first of all, concerning this life, again in verse 10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life, Zoe, and that more abundantly. So whatever this life is, Jesus wants you to have it abundantly abundantly. God never does anything uh, in small little thimbleful installments. He wants you to have the fullness of all he's offering right up front. And Jesus said that the life he came to give, he wanted people to have an abundant supply of this life. Again, Jesus, let me just say this, when most Americans... <laughs> hear that Jesus came to give them life and that more abundantly. I think most Americans 
think wealth, prosperity, things. Jesus came to give me abundant amount of stuff, right? Jesus never meant physical prosperity. He meant the things in life which really matter, the things that money can't buy. Someone has said money will buy you a bed but not sleep, books but not wisdom, a house but not a home, solitude but not peace, luxuries but not love, a quality of life but not a quality of soul. The kind of abundance that Jesus was talking about was all the abstract intangibles of life like love, joy, peace, contentment, freedom. Those things that make the poorest man rich when he possesses them and the richest man poor when he does not. How far the church has moved from the deeply spiritual teachings of Jesus in its carnal quest for wealth and materialism. The greed and shallowness of so many Christians today that want to reduce everything Jesus taught about true riches to the level of dollars and cents, end quote. Again, folks, money can buy you a quality of living. It cannot buy you a quality of life, the first being outward, the second being inward. In fact, Jesus warned us against trying to define our lives in terms of our outward material possessions when he said in Luke 12, verse 15, take heed and beware of covetousness for a person's life, listen, does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And with regard to Zoe life, eternal life, it isn't just a quantity of life, it's really a quality of life. The thing that makes eternal life so wonderful, so appealing, is not its quantity, never-ending, it is its quality, richness, and fullness. Eternal life wouldn't be appealing if it simply meant living forever. I mean, if that life was painful, help, hopeless, and empty, I mean, people in hell are going to live forever. That's not a blessing. What makes eternal life, the eternal life that Jesus gives, so appealing and desirable is that, yes, it's never-ending, but it's never-ending life, listen, in all of its fullness, richness, joy, and blessing. As someone has said, medical science might add years to our life, but only Jesus can add life to our years. This then becomes the theme of John's gospel, life, zoe life, eternal life. Where 54 times in his gospel, he talks about this life. Why does he talk about it so much? Because he desperately wants people to come to Jesus and drink from the fountain of life. Jesus Christ is the fountain. He's the source of this. It's only found in Christ. That's what John said. In him was life and only in him. Jesus Christ is the fountain, the source of this spiritual life. And John desired for everybody to come and drink of Christ to take in this eternal life, no doubt drawing from Jesus' um, encounter with the woman by the well in, in chapter 4, remember? How that she had come to a physical well. She was an outcast. She had been divorced and remarried uh, five times and was now living with a guy. 
An empty woman came to a well to get physical water to satisfy her thirst. Jesus met her there, knowing knowing she was going to come, ordained before the foundation of the world. He knew. So he, he's sitting there when she gets there, and he says, ask her for a drink of water. She's shocked because a Jew never asked a Samaritan for anything. They don't have any dealings with Samaritans, she said. And Jesus said, well, if you knew who was, was asking you for this water, you would give, uh, you would give, I would give, you would ask him for a drink, and he would give you living water. And you remember this story. She said, well, the well is deep, and you have nothing to draw with. How are you going to give me that living water? And then he said something that was a metaphor, using a, a, a literal source of water. He said, if you drink of this water, you will thirst again. If you drink the water that I give, you will never thirst again. It will be like an everlasting spring bubbling up from within unto eternal life. He was the well. He was the water. But he was using the physical. She was trying to satisfy an inward thirst with physical things, men, maybe possessions, who knows what trying to stuff all this material stuff, uh, physical stuff, into a spiritual void. That's what he was putting his finger on. You can't fill a spiritual hunger with a physical, with the junk of this physical world. If you come to me and drink, I will give to you everlasting life, and inwardly, oh, you'll still thirst for water or need food, but spiritually, internally, you will not thirst or hunger again. Your soul will be satisfied. So this life that Jesus speaks of and is offering freely to all people, very simply, what is it? It's the life of God. It's the life of God. Spiritual life is to be born again. Some translations translated born from above, John 3, verse 7. Spiritual life begins the moment we are born again. The moment we receive Jesus Christ into our heart as our Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God moves in, and He begins to pour into us the very life of God. The fruit of the Spirit is the, is the attributes of God, basically. It, Peter said when we accepted Christ, 2 Peter 1.4, we at that moment became partakers of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit moved in, God moved into our hearts and lives, and the life of God began to work from the inside to fill the void, to bring satisfaction where there was emptiness, uh, fulfillment where, you know, we we're trying to have, look to the junk of the world to satisfy the inner hunger and thirst within, that kind of thing. That's why people are feverishly uh, acquiring stuff. The bumper sticker, the one who dies with the most toys wins. Really? Wins what? The one who dies with the most, that to me is an expression of the inner thirst trying to be satisfied with physical stuff. Once again, many people in our culture have a rich outward quality of living, but are bankrupt of any inward quality of life. I think that pastor and evangelist Greg Laurie captures this concept when he described his life growing up in a non-Christian home with an unbelieving mother. He said, and I quote, If I were to pick a word to describe it, it would be the word hedonistic. By that I mean it was a home where the pleasures of this life were sought. My mom, a beautiful woman, was married and divorced many times and was sort of living that partying, drinking lifestyle, you know, you all know it. Uh, and that was the environment I was raised in. As a child, my thought was, I don't want to end up like these adults I am exposed to. How bad is it for a kid 
you know, to realize that the adults in his life are living such an empty, worthless life that he as a kid says, I don't want to wind up like them. He said, my big question was not, is there life after death? My question was, is there life during life? Is there a life worth living? A life that, is, that has true meaning? He goes on, the story is told years ago of an artist who sculpted a beautiful angel and wanted the master artist Michelangelo to inspect it and give him his opinion. So Michelangelo was called in and he carefully looked at this sculpture from every angle. He examined it. He thought about it for a while. The artist could hardly wait for Michelangelo's response. And finally, the great artist said, well, it lacks only one thing. And then he turned around and walked out, leaving the artist to wonder, well, what, it lack? what did it lack? He was embarrassed to go after the great artist and ask him, so he sent a friend over to Michelangelo's studio to try to find out what his statue lacked. His friend asked Michelangelo, and Michelangelo said, it lacks life. It lacks life. Interesting statement, Laurie said. You see, his sculpture in many ways was perfect. Everything was in its proper place, but it lacked only one thing, life. And that could be said of a lot of people today. They have all their ducks in a row. <laughs> you know, you, you've got the house, you've got the car, you've got the husband, the wife, the kids, you have the career, you have money in the bank, you have everything going the way that things ought to go, supposedly to be living life to its fullness, and yet your life still lacks something. It lacks life. There is simply something that isn't right. It reminds us that we can get all A's and still flunk life. And some people are living those lives of quiet desperation, having many of the things in life they want and yet not really possessing what they really need, end quote. This is the sad reality for so many in this country who have an outward quality of living, but not an inward quality of life. And to these people, the Lord Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly. Now understand that in the context of John 10 and the abundant life that only Jesus gives, it is connected to Jesus being our good shepherd. This is in contrast to all the other so-called shepherds that promise people life, spiritual life, but then in reality only deliver death and destruction. Look at verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now, it's been a while since we talked about this. Let me just refresh your memory. John's gospel is highly organized, highly organized. He built it around seven miracles that led to seven discourses that culminated in seven I am statements. The phrase I am is the name of God, first expressed by God to Moses in chapter in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, when Moses asked God his name, and God said, I am 
is my name. In John 10, Jesus makes two more of these I am statements, number three and number four. In verse 9, he says, I am the door. And then in verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. Now, each of these statements is a name, I am, the name of God, followed by a description of what, what the Lord wants to be to us. That's why when I read them, I like to hyphenate them. I am hyphen the door. I am hyphen the good shepherd. Because it's the name of God followed by a description of what he wants to be to you, to me, to all people. I am the door, the only way into heaven. I am the good shepherd, the only one who can lead you there through this world to your destination. It's kind of like me saying my name followed by a description of what I am. Phil Ballmeyer hyphen, the pastor, is the idea, all right? When Jesus said, I am, of course, he was declaring his divinity. And don't think that was lost for a second on his enemies. They understood he was claiming to be God in human form, which is why they tried to stone him on several occasions. Look at verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. This was not, you know, an isolated thing. They took up stones again to stone him. And we're grateful to the Pharisees, for one thing. As you're reading your Bible, you might skim over something and maybe miss something important, so the Pharisees help us out. They pick up stones to throw at Jesus. Whenever you read, and the Pharisees picked up stones to stone him, go back and reread what you just read. It's important, all right? I mean, they were really reacting to it. But the Jews, and the word Jews in John's Gospel was a term for Jewish leadership, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you now stone me? The Jews answering, answered him, saying, Well, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, and the Greek is constantly, repeatedly, make yourself God. They knew what he was claiming. And it wasn't something spoken one time in a corner. It was the hallmark of his ministry to go around teaching that he was God in human form. God in the flesh. Now listen, when Jesus called himself the good shepherd, it immediately connected him to the promise that God gave his people Israel so many years earlier when the spiritual leaders and teachers of the nation at that time didn't care about God's sheep at all, but only used them as a way to gain power, prestige, and wealth. God denounced them, these bad shepherds, in the strongest terms, and promised that someday he would send his people a good shepherd, a good shepherd, to replace all the evil shepherds that had plagued the nation for so many years. Jeremiah 23, verse 1. You can just write these down. Jeremiah 23, verse 1. God is talking about these evil shepherds. When I say the shepherds of Israel. I'm talking about the spiritual leaders, the prophets, the priests, and so on. What sorrow awaits the leaders of my people, the shepherds of my sheep? For they have destroyed and scattered the very ones they were expected to care for, says the Lord. 
Ezekiel 34, verses 9 to 11. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds of Israel, and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the flock, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. I'm going to be their shepherd. A prophecy of Jesus coming as the good shepherd. Ezekiel 34, verse 23, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, or in other words, the son of David, Messiah, Jesus, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. All throughout the history of Israel, God's people were plagued by false and evil shepherds who led them into idolatry and immorality. But now the good and the true shepherd had come. And one of the most endearing and poignant passages in all of Scripture on his loving care for the sheep is found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. Let me read it to you. He will feed his flock like a true shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. In John 10, verse 11, when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, the Greek is, the Greek is literally, I am the shepherd, the good one. I am the shepherd, the good one. You think he was relating back to those scriptures, those prophecies? That someday God would send a good shepherd? I'm the good shepherd. I'm the shepherd that was spoken of. The good one. There are two words in Greek for good. The first word is agathos, which means good in the sense of moral quality. For example, if I did a painting, it might be good, agathos, uh, meaning, from a moral standpoint, meaning it's not obscene, all right? I mean, if I did a painting, it might be agathos, good, from a moral standpoint. It's not obscene, all right? So in that regard, it would be good. But artistically, it would be lousy, because I can't paint. <laughs> but if you wanted to express the word good with regard to a painting that was not only good from a moral standpoint but also good in the sense of a profoundly good painting, one of total beauty and loveliness. Well, the Greeks did have a word to capture that idea. It was the Greek word kalos, kalos. And that is the word that Jesus used of himself in John 10, verse 11. In using the word kalos of himself, Jesus isn't just saying, I am the morally good one. Of course he's that. He's saying, I am the good one, preeminent and excellent in every feature. I am the good, the beautiful one, inside and out, through and through. And again, remember the context. Jesus is saying he's not just another shepherd to come down the pike of Jewish history. They were used to bad shepherds. 
They were used to characters that said they were spiritual and had the nation's best interests at heart, supposedly men of God, quote unquote, who only then used the people to line their pockets, you know, and uh, just uh, got from the people, you know, the prestige, the wealth and all that other stuff, the power that they craved. So the nation was used to these bad shepherds. And Jesus is not just saying, well, I'm not like one of those. I'm not like, you know, one of those that has come in your history. One of those bad shepherds that came before me. Now he's saying he's the good shepherd. But listen, not just morally speaking. I mean, there are a lot of good shepherds humanly speaking, that were a part of Israel's history. Men like Moses and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel and so on. There were a lot of people that were prophets and, uh, and spiritual leaders that were good. That were good men, moral men. Were they perfect? Of course they weren't. So in that regard, Jesus is saying, I'm not even like one of them. He's telling us that he is not just another spiritual leader sent from God to teach spiritual truth. No, he is saying, I am the, the one alone who is good morally and excellent in beauty and loveliness through and through. There is not now, nor has there ever been, and I'll add, nor will there, will there ever be a shepherd like me. Jesus is telling us, that he is the only truly good shepherd. Above all others in human history, the only one who is absolutely perfect in goodness and beauty, again, inside and out. Now, in the Jewish mind, of course, Jesus has just declared himself to be the best shepherd ever. Okay? Like a valley kid. I'm the best shepherd ever. <laughs> Don't you know? You know, and uh, in the Jewish mind, the greatest shepherd who ever lived was David. David. And so here Jesus is saying that he's a greater shepherd than even their beloved David. Now you might be thinking, well, didn't that upset them a little bit? I mean, you know, I'm thinking of the religious leaders that were standing there that day uh, and heard Jesus say this. I mean, didn't that kind of uh, upset them a little bit, irritate them? Probably. I think sometimes the Lord did it purposely to, you know, get them thinking to stick the cage, the, put the stick in the cage and rattle around and get them all worked up, right? <laughs> Going crazy. It probably upset him, probably irritated him. But then again, in chapter 5, Jesus said he was greater than Moses. In chapter 8, he said he was greater than Abraham. I mean, why not go for the trifecta and throw David into the mix? <laughs> You have to understand what he's doing. All through his ministry, Jesus has been establishing in the Jewish mind his superiority over the greatest prophets and leaders in the nation's history. But even more than that, guys, I believe that by calling himself the good shepherd, he's once again declaring his divinity. David in Psalm 23, their favorite shepherd, in Psalm 23, verse 1, said, The Lord is my shepherd, 
capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see all capitals, the word Lord, it means Yahweh. Yahweh, the great I am. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 80, verse 1, the psalmist calls God the shepherd of Israel. And now here, Jesus calling himself the good, the kalos shepherd, using a word that basically says, I am greater than any shepherd that has ever lived. Tying himself back to Yahweh in the Old Testament, because guess what? Here he is in the flesh. Let me close by saying, and I, and I said in the first service, uh, you'll have to bear with me. Sometimes um, I forget when I said something. So I don't know if I made this analogy uh, two years ago or, uh, you know, a month and a half ago. Now, if it starts being like, you know, a few hours ago, then I'm going to seek some help. Um, but right now, uh, you'll be patient with me because um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting old. Okay. <laughs> So if you heard me use this analogy, please bear with me. But um, at almost every funeral I've ever done, Psalm 23 has been incorporated into it in some way. Either the family has asked me or another uh, person to read Psalm 23. Often on those little cards, those little laminated cards you get when you go there, uh, they have a picture of Jesus. If it's a, a Christian or a Catholic or uh, some that kind of a, of a funeral, they have a picture of Jesus maybe on the front. On back, there's a scripture. Often it's Psalm 23. Often it's Psalm 23. And while and I, what I've said to people is, um, and of course Psalm 23 begins with the words, "The Lord is my shepherd." Now, as I've said before, this psalm has a universal appeal, and by that I mean almost all who have heard it love it has a universal appeal, but it doesn't have a universal application. Because unless a person can personalize the statement as David did when he said the Lord is my shepherd, he or she cannot claim the rest of the psalm is their own. Turn to Psalm 23. Again, my point is that Jesus is not just a shepherd. One of many to lead you to heaven, as some believe. He's not even only the shepherd. As a Roman Catholic, I believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God, the shepherd, the only way to heaven. That didn't do me any good until I made Jesus my shepherd. I received him as my Lord and Savior. So Psalm 23, verse 1. And I'm going to emphasize the personal pronouns because David made the Lord his shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Remember in John 10, Jesus ties eternal life to a person making him their shepherd. Which begs the question this morning, how does a person know? How do you know? You might be thinking, well, how do I know if I've made Jesus my shepherd? Very simply, a shepherd is one who leads the sheep. And guess what? The sheep follow him. The question is, are you following Jesus this morning? Are you following Jesus? He is going to say before this chapter is over in verses 27 and 8, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Let me just say this. Everyone has a shepherd. You know that? Everyone has a shepherd. In other words, everyone is being led by someone or something. Everyone has a shepherd that is controlling them. For some, it might be some kind of a spiritual guru or spiritual leader. Um, we see a lot of those floating around today. Somebody they look to for spiritual guidance and so on. It might be a celebrity like a rock star or a movie star or some kind of an athletic superstar. It might be a highly successful CEO that people look to to be like, you know, their shepherd to guide them because that's what they want to emulate. Maybe a CEO like a Bill Gates or a Jeff Bezos, God help us. Or it might be something like drugs that they lean on look to, to get them through the day, booze, desire for wealth, though, or power, uh, success, pleasure, a lot of things that get people up in the morning, that they follow out the door because that's what keeps them going, the pursuit of that thing, whatever it is. The people who say, I'll never become a Christian because I want to be in control of my own life are deceiving themselves. I know I've quoted that great theologian Bob Dylan before. <laughs> you didn't know Bob was a theologian? I know he's, he was right about one thing. Remember the line from his one song, you gotta serve somebody? Actually, let me rephrase that. You're gonna serve somebody. You're gonna serve somebody. Joshua put it this way. Choose this day who you will serve. Choose this day who, not if, but who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The issue is not if I have a shepherd. The real issue is what kind of a shepherd do I have and where is it or he or she leading my life? Folks, Jesus is the only good shepherd. The only one who can lead you in life all the way to heaven. He leads us in the right paths for his name's sake. Now we're done. Let me just say this though. You guys, most of you I know in this room, I know you. 
You're evangelical Christians. You're not following, you know, uh, some other spiritual leader. You're, you're following Jesus. You're not putting the money and the, and the wealth and pleasure and all these other pursuits before the Lord. You love the Lord, and, and, and you want to follow him. Do you know the competition, though, in your life and my life? You know what is competing for us follow, from following the Lord? Us. Us. This, I am the problem. I am the person in my life who is competing with Jesus more than anyone or anything else to go the way I want to go. So often we wouldn't even maybe uh, verbalize it this way. But so often, even as Christians now, people want to do their own thing, go their own way, and then ask God to bless it. And if he does, I'm following the Lord. No, you're following you. And because God is so gracious, sometimes he blesses where you want to go, but that's not his best choice. His best choice for our lives is that we follow him. He's the shepherd. I'm the sheep. When you turn it the other way around where I become the shepherd and he's like the sheep following where I want to go. I'm not saying it's going to be a complete disaster, although it may be, but you will definitely settle for far less than God's best for your life. The, the, the goal this year, hopefully, is that you follow the good shepherd. And, and, and what did he say in his word? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He is the word, right? In the beginning, in the beginning John was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. In him was life. Yeah. If we make him our shepherd, if we follow where he's leading... It's not going to always be the best path for our life. Excuse me, the, 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 the easiest path for our life. It will always be the best path. Because there's no greater life to live than the life that's lived in God's will. And may God give us grace. Oh, yeah, Jesus is my shepherd. I love the Lord. Oh, great. Are you following him in everything? Well, you know, I mean, come on, let's be honest, all right? We can all regurgitate these pious platitudes. Got the, I got the Lord as my shepherd. I'm, I'm painted across the wall in my bedroom. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> well, yeah, wonderful. I'm very happy for you. Are you living that? Okay? Because that's where it's all at. Jesus doesn't want to be a figurehead. He, he doesn't want to be uh, a little verbiage on some uh, driftwood that you put on your desk. I hate all that Christian junk that we pay all kinds of money for. Jesus junk, you know? We need to follow where he's leading. Oh, but I don't want to go that way. Then he's not your, your shepherd. Because if he's your shepherd, you follow him wherever he leads. And he'll give you the grace. We have a brother in the church after first service we talked out in the hallway, him and his wife. He's got uh, cancer in his lymph nodes. He goes in for another round of chemo tomorrow morning. Pray for him, Joe. He's going for radiation at the same time. And now it's starting to take its toll. His voice is very hoarse. His neck is becoming red, redder and redder. It's becoming burned by the radiation. He said, this is not what I would have chosen. But I'm really learning some things about God through this. Jesus never said it would be easy. 
he did say he would lead us in the right paths. The paths that would bring the most glory to God and allow us to have the most blessed entry into the kingdom of heaven. If that's where our heart is at. A lot of Christians hear that and they go, I don't want that. I want right now. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't think he's your shepherd. Because he, he went to the cross and said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to realize there's a cross in your life too. And if you don't want the cross, you don't want the Savior. There's no such thing as a, as a crossless Christianity. A crossless Christianity is a Christless Christianity. That can't save anybody. So may God give us grace as we continue looking at our good shepherd and what he has done for us and all that it means to follow him wherever he leads. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the shepherd, the good one. All other so-called shepherds are thieves and robbers. They don't have people's best interests at heart, they have come to steal, kill, and destroy. You are the only good shepherd who laid down his life for your sheep. Give us grace to follow you wherever you go, Lord, with absolute submission. And we thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.